I'm Erica Lynn, and we all know the ocean is the most demanding environment on Earth, consistently testing the reliability and durability of our equipment. When you spend as much time fishing as I do, you know that reliable gear is essential for staying on the water. This is why I went with Abyss Battery to power my trolling motor, electronics, and outboard. The guys at Abyss Battery are rattling the saltwater industry by manufacturing performance marine batteries specifically designed for sonar, outboards, trolling motors, and electronic fishing reels. They're also Bluetooth compatible, so I found check battery statuses right on your phone while you're out on the water is a huge game changer. To learn more about why Abyss batteries are used by the pros and factory installed by Premier Boat Builders, visit abyssbattery.com. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Bringing you up to speed on the latest in conservation, science, and responsible hunting in Canada. Hey everyone, it's Mark Hall, and you're listening to the Round Canada Podcast. Dr. Lee Foote, welcome to the Around Canada Podcast. Hey Mark, it's great to be here. Looking forward to some current events. Rather than the uh, typical list of all of the trending stories for the last few weeks that I cover on Around Canada, we're going to kind of cover narrower down. We're going to focus her down on, on a couple of stories here. Definitely a topic that's near and dear to your heart, near and dear to my heart. I was out duck hunting today with the little Ruger who's actually turning into be quite a good retriever. He was so worn out today. He was sitting in the blind and he was literally just like sitting there and he was like falling asleep, sitting up or he just flop his head over on my arm. And he was, I was like, We've been grouse hunting. We've been in the high country hunting blue grouse. We've been canoeing in and setting up and hunting waterfowl and stuff. And the little dude was tired today. How, now how old is he now? He's a, he was a year in April. So a year and yeah. a half. Yeah. Yeah. So he's that, still a little guy, but. Uh, <laughs> that's a great time to settle him in. And, you know, that becomes, it sort of routinizes things and they're not spazzing out. They know the routine. It's a very teachable moment. Yeah. No, he does. He's doing really well. He's the English lab breed, so he's a little bit more chill. Um, yeah. You know, just if you get him to sit and stuff like that, he's he's pretty good. Uh, even to the point where, like, you could light his bum on fire and he he wouldn't do too much. He'd be, oh, would you look at that? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. This, yeah. There's some real liabilities. The big showy, fast-moving labs that that uh, we've selected for in North America, we, if they put on a show. They're great in a in a retriever trial and stuff. But man, they they're they're a bit of a problem sometimes too. They shaking mud all over you and you know competing with each other and jumping over stuff and wild in the canoe. It's a pretty wild time. Well, that that's Curtis's lab, and um, she can actually she can actually beat your shotgun pellets out to, to, yeah. to the, like, it's like, oh, oh, the dog's out in the middle of the set. Oh, there was a duck there who, who we were the last ones to know. <laughs> um, 
But yeah, topic near and dear to our heart. And so, so the reason I got you on the show was to touch on a trending story from earlier this fall. It was actually, I, I would say it's a trending story North American wide. Um, and it was the, the 2023 waterfowl breeding population and habitat survey. And there were some numbers on here, which I think were concerning to the waterfowl industry, uh, the waterfowl lovers and the, you know, the waterfowl hunters. So I, w- I wanted to get you on the show and talk about this. We're still in the middle of prime waterfowl season. I think it's a timely, a timely topic. Uh, I'll just, I'll touch on a, f- on a few things. I th- I saw another graph somewhere. I can't remember. The one I'm looking at right here is the population survey from Delta Waterfowl. But I saw another one that listed North American wide the top harvested ducks in duck hunting season. And I believe in one, two, three, correct me if I'm wrong, if you know this off by heart, was mallard, gadwall, and green winged teals. Sometimes wood duck is in there. But yeah, that's that's okay. Okay. Yeah. Those are totally believable. Okay. The gadwall is a really interesting one, though, because gadwall and widgeon numbers have been going up over years because they're they're foliovore feeders, they feed on vegetation. And the creation of impoundments along their flyways have really improved gadwall and widgeon habitat, Um, just like we did with with many of the other dabbling ducks and crops. They have this smorgasbord up and down the the flyways. Now the, the gadwalls are having their day, too. Okay. Yeah. So, so looking at the 2023, um, survey, it, it did show that gadwall populations were up 25% from the long-term average, but down 5% from a year ago. I think the concerning one, well, and then, and good news, green wing teal being popular, were up 15% from the long-term average and up 16% from last year. But I think the you know, the be all end all of duck hunting, you know, across the boards, our beloved mallard was down 23% from the long-term average and down 18% from last year. So what I wanted you to do was explain these numbers a little bit. Are they highly alarming to you as a scientist? Uh, a little bit how they're, how they're derived, what they mean, and what do you think is is going on. I, th- I mean, I think a 25 pintails is obviously another, uh, I got one this morning, but down 43% from the long-term average. Um, gosh. Yeah. You know, I would say it's not a reason for concern unless this is a blip. This is a one year thing and ducks are up and down in a funny sort of way. For example, if mallards have had a really good last year run great year, they're not going to do that two years in a row, typically. Maybe they would, but it would make this year look rather paltry. Now, the long-term average is the right thing to compare it to. But duck numbers are really funny. What you perceive in the field as far as shooting opportunity, you might not detect that. I've seen years where there are catastrophic concerns about duck numbers, and yet I happen to be in the right place and had great streams of ducks coming through. The other man bites dog situation is, I was out with Matt the other day and he said, well, things are starting to dry up down in Southern Alberta where we were going to go duck hunting. I said, you know, that can be a really good thing. It means the birds are concentrated in a few water holes instead of scattered all to hell and high water. 
literally. Um, so it's hard to detect those. Green wings and scop act perform, they they act on a whole different schedule. They're they're northern boreal uh, breeders. They don't they don't experience the duck factory. And you know what this is, but maybe maybe other listeners won't be aware that in a really good year, the duck factory, that prairie pothole region in Saskatchewan, Alberta, Montana, it'll produce 75% of the fall flight of dabbling ducks in this one relatively small area. It's, it's you know, like 10, 15% of the entire breed, normal breeding area, and yet it just pumps them out. Sometimes 100, 100 uh, potholes per square mile. Just a ton of breeding opportunity, a lot of edge in there. And there's a lot of waterfowl behavior that goes into this. You can only pack so many ducks into an area. A small pothole, acre, two or three, will only have one breeding pair of mallards typically. They, they're, they're territorial. So you need lots of small wetlands packed in the area. Each, each pair has their own area. You can put a, a canvas back, you can put a Canada goose in there, but mallards, they'll, they'll defend their, you know, they're, they're just a little turfy. They don't want to be in, in visual sight of other mallards. Plenty of exceptions, but as a general rule, they space themselves out a lot. Uh, I'm this, not this is for breeding and nesting. Yeah. They, they want yeah. to space themselves out. Because like, you know, come November when they're aggregating, they're just like they're crawling over top of each other. Yeah. Yeah, that, that breeding thing. The, the, the sort of the, the five big surveys they do each year for waterfowl or midwinter water uh, midwinter counts they do in mississippi louisiana the in a few areas the may pond counts which have a really really good correlation to what the breeding populations do but there'll be some problems there the breeding bird counts which we've been doing since 1955 i guess it is except for the COVID years they had a consistent record of flying this series of transects through the the north and then the fall harvest reports where they call out and they do bag checks and things. And then there's the wing bees that they give some age and sex and species rough. Of those, the pond counts are probably the very best, frankly. And uh, they, they have a real, there's been a move afoot to stop many of the other surveys, just go with pond counts. But pond counts can lie to you. If you go to a May pond count and uh, it looks great and then they go home expecting a good fall flight, and then it's dry all summer. What you do is you produce a bunch of ducklings and they go out into dry dust holes and they turn into owl and fox food. On the contrary, a modest number of ponds, they see, say, oh, it might not be very good. But then there's rains throughout the summer. You have consistent water and great survival. It's really about a survival of, of the number of nests. And all of a sudden you have these burgeoning dabbling ducks. Mallards are all over the place. Pintails are all over the place. So they're, they're kind of funny and they can move some. I mean, they do a walkabout, you know, when a hen's nest of ducklings hatches, they often get up, they'll walk a kilometer just going through the grass. She knows, she has the ponds mapped out. She'll take them to water. It's a very dangerous trek. I mean, everything from, from a gopher snake to a, a fox, to a, to a badger, to a skunk, owl, red-tailed hawk, anything that sees them is going to eat them. I mean, they're, they're just choice little morsels. So that it's, it's a funny sort of thing, you know, that... You can't really trust any of these numbers. It's sort of an art, the art of wildlife management for the real waterfowl pros to put all these pieces together and come up with a forecast. Frank Rohr at, at uh, Delta said it really best. We don't hunt the birds we see on the breeding, really, the breeding bird for, uh, counts. What we're really hunting is the offspring of those birds. In, a, in an average year, you know, a hen will lay a clutch of six to, to 12 eggs she only has got to produce two offspring in her entire life to meet the replacement of her and her Drake, basically. And why do they produce 12 eggs and some, and re-nest? And they'll do that year after year. 
unless we're going to be up to our waist in ducklings, a lot of those birds have to die. And they can explode in numbers or they can collapse in numbers, but they're, they're a highly variable, what we call an R-selected species, a reproductive selected species. So a lot of those ducklings are going to die. And we're not, you know, typically 15, 20% survival rate of, of nestlings. That means hatching all the way up to flighted is a really, really good number. You expect to have, you know, 75 eight to 85% mortality before the birds get on the wing. So, and those are the birds that we're actually hunting. So, so these, these numbers that when I was talking about, like, for example, mallards down 22% from the long-term average. So that's, that's a breeding count. So those, those would, the benchmark is birds during the breeding season, right? Like not, not looking at, at like, how do they fare over the summertime? That's the, the baseline is always the and so then you're saying that is dependent on droughts and stuff for the summer, but it's kind of like the metric, what's going on in the breeding season should kind of tell you what you might find in, in fall production. Yeah. Barring some weird things happening during the summer. And we've had some weird things in the last few summers, some pretty severe droughts and some pretty significant forest fires in the boreal part of Canada actually as well. So. Yeah, we, we had 16% of the normal precipitation this summer where I am on Vancouver Island. Uh, and that was really, really dry, wetting up now. But I don't, get, I don't get too excited about any one year's forecast. It's those running averages and long-term averages that are really important. Uh, so, yeah, the magic number that, you, that all waterfowl managers would love to have is how many birds came off the pond and migrated south. How many started south? It's impossible to survey because they move around. The, the broods are breaking up. They're asynchronous. They're at different times. They're coming off. They, you know, how many are nested? How many are renested birds? So <clears throat> it's just not a, an amenable number to get. But with geese, it's quite. It's a little easier. You can get some sense if you're a serious, say, speckle belly hunter. And some years you see a mate for life pair of speckle bellies, nice barred breast, no young with them, or one one offspring. You think, ooh, they're not doing well. Sometimes you'll see that pair of adults with three, four, five young with them, they, they pulled off an entire clutch, they're doing great. And it's just family group after family group. Your eye, you can detect survival and reproduction for the year on a yearly basis by seeing those family groups. Not so easy with mallards. They they break up their broods, they scatter out, they go and looking for love for the first year. So um, it's just not, it's not really possible. I'm not too alarmed until next year. I'll be alarmed. This is, I'll start getting alarmed if it's down again next year and down again the next year. Then you're into a trend, not a blip. So the, the long-term average that, that there's, is this the entire data set going back to the fifties? Or is it a rolling, it's not a rolling 10 year long-term average, like Mm, that would make more sense because conditions have changed so much in North America. But I think what they've done is they've set, used those numbers to set some uh, minimum successful populations. The adaptive harvest management method is sort of three stages in the simplest form. A red light, which means scalp, pintails, we're not going to shoot them. Their numbers are down. A yellow light, which means you can take a moderate harvest, cautious, you know. And a green light means there's plenty of birds. We can't stockpile them. Kill them, boys. There's lots of, lots of shooting opportunity and you're not going to hurt the population with hunting. 
it, the, that's sort of those coarse bins. That's sort of what they've moved to in the adaptive harvest management. That that came about in the in the eighties, uh, based on some really good science by Ken Burnham, Dave Anderson, and a bunch of other really quantitative ecologists. They looked at the variability around populations, the hunter harvest, the influence, the difference in compensatory and additive mortalities, and they said we don't have the crystal ball to fine tune this much beyond red, yellow, green. And I think it really is a workable sort of management tool. Huh. Okay. Now the difference between, I, like, I think you talked a little bit about this at the very beginning. So the gadwalls are up long-term average green wing teals are up. Mallards are down now is, and that's because are the gadwalls and the green wings both breeding in the northern boreal forest and the mallards and pintails are in like the southern prairie pothole region? How, how does that how does that work? Like what I'm trying to get at is you got these birds are all traveling together. They're all living together. It's like, oh, there's a mallard goes by and there's six teal go by. It's like they're just a like it's like going to the mall. So why, you know, and they're using the same ponds and eating the same food. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. Like why the difference between the birds? Like that, that really fascinates me. Is it something that's ecological based, a uh, special niche with their food? Obviously there's a huge difference in the size of a teal versus a, you know, a, a big mallard. What are your thoughts on well, I think they do travel together uh, locally. When they're up and migrate, and they often have fairly consistent flocks for flight speed, communication, seeking them out. I think the gadwalls are a slightly different bird. You rarely see them field feeding. I mean, mallards really like water for loafing on and peas, corn, wheat, rice, they can fly out and field feed when they're in migration. Gadwalls a little different from that. They, they jump from hither to yon. They're eating lower nutrition, lower oil, lower carbohydrate foods uh, in these ponds. And uh, they have a slightly different search image. Uh, again, they're, they're deeper water birds. They're not as much of a shallow water dabbler as, as uh, the mallards and pintails are. So they're a little bit different. Widgeon are even more so, mostly along the coast. But uh, they're just kind of different that way. The... Um, the ones that worry me are, are pintails. I mean, you know, pintails ha have a sort of a specialized breeding habit of they're more of an upland short grass breeder. And as with modern agriculture, we're getting rid of a lot of our prairie, a lot of our dense cover. Uh, they're just so vulnerable to predation and to haying machines and all sorts of things. Um, and we've managed to restrict our, our buffers around the potholes in that duck factory down to just a narrow little strip with big farm equipment. And, um, and any fox or coyote that wanders into that little donut around, of, of weeds around a pothole, they can clean the whole thing up. Uh, and so those the, the dabblers in the prairie pothole have a tough go. A lot of it's habitat driven. So a really wet year does two things. It keeps water in the pond. It also reduces the ability of the early harrowing and tilling uh, to get in there and, and destroy those nests and plant through where they would be nesting. Fall plowing is another problem. For, for ducks, I understand why farmers do it, but it's it's a problem for ducks because there's no residual dead vegetation in this early spring. Huh. So, I mean, back up here a little bit. So the gadwalls, based on their feeding 
you know, behavior and, and, and you said slightly nutri- slightly lower nutritious, uh, would seem that it would, they would maybe be more subject to fluctuations than say a mallard that's going to like waddle out in the middle of the field and eat, eat spilled, you know, peas or a pulse, pul- any pulse crop, but they're, the gadwall numbers are, are, are good up 25%. There's a little error in your logic there. You're thinking about the adult mallards that have this smorgasbord they're eating. The adult, yeah, the, the gadwalls, it's it's the nestlings that we're, we're more interested in. This big pulse of young that are coming off. Gadwalls tend to be drawn towards deeper water, more stable, class three wetlands. Mallards, pintails, they, they all need this highly nutritious uh, animal protein, insect protein. And the very best duck lake or duck pond you can get is one that occasionally dries out and kills all the fish. So when it floods back up, it's full of invertebrates with nothing to eat them except ducks and shorebirds. If there's fish in there, it's usually lower. Ephemeral wetlands, is that what they call them? Yeah. Yeah. Those are the ones that are hard to have mosquitoes in as well, from what I understand. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, it's a, it's a different thing. All the all the ducks need a uh, not geese, but all the ducks need animal protein to build that clutch of eggs and for their young to come off and forage and and get to flighted status. So it is an insect game, really. It's not about the peas until their own migration need the energy in little small packets. Gotcha. Yeah. No, I I I relate that to wild turkeys, which bio, biology wise, it you know, maybe know a little, little bit more, but yeah, the, uh, the insects, especially arachnids, the spiders, uh, are apparently just like make or break poults in the springtime. And, and it's, it's critical for them to have those, those insects and, you know, a bit of warm weather and a bit of moisture and a bit of moisture makes a little bit of green, green vegetation and a little bit of warmth on this, you know, Southwest aspects makes life good for a bug and so on and so on. So, um, yeah, no, it makes, that definitely makes a, a lot of sense. I had a great big, uh, dragonfly nymph stuck to my little camel cover that was on my canoe this morning. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that there used to be that we thought chironomids were the name of the game because it'd be 180,000 per square meter. And then you could reach your hand down and pull up a squirming mass of them. But you have to eat so many of those things to get a, a, a gullet full. Probably more valuable is a great big juicy dragonfly nymph, you know, or something like that, the, the big packets. A little nod to the vegans. I don't think you have a lot of them watching today. But um, one of the few animals I know of that eats neither meat protein milk protein or insect protein is is a uh, a lot of the geese they they select high nitrogen high protein forage and they're pretty much vegan vegetarian their entire life they'll pick up an incidental bug or two here and there but those poles or those not poles those uh goslings they have to follow their parents to carefully selected high nutrition green up to, to go from basically a, a recent hatchling all the way up to a two and a half kilogram uh, adult, flighted adult that can make the migration. And that's one of the concerns about the, the die-offs of, of snow geese in the north. North, They just don't have a lot of, uh, of high nutrition vegetation left up there when they're crowded too much. So they sort of self-limit. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, that is super interesting because one of the places in the early season that I go 
to concentrate on Canada geese are alfalfa fields, which are incredibly high in nitrogen for a plant. They're a nitrogen fixer. They produce their own nitrogen. They're good for the soil. So I'm like, okay, that totally makes sense. Like it's, it's so green in those fields. Like my, 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 marsh camel lay down blind and stuff it just sucks when i'm out there and i was actually i was actually calling around to the carpet stores in september to say you know that that indoor outdoor carpet that looks like grass the green stuff i'm like do you get any like chunks of that laying around because it's those alfalfa fields are just super bright green but yeah no that totally makes sense huh it's sort of interesting i heard another really cool way the guys were hunting Canada geese, late season Canada geese on frozen lakes, but going out with buckets of blue dyed water and making it look like there was open water out there and putting their decoys on it, clustered in tight. Other geese would come piling in thinking that there was open water. And as soon as they got within range, they said, hey, that's frozen. They were in range, though. So it was it was a, like a chemical decoy or, you know, who'd have thunk? Oh, I want. I wonder. Well, I guess it depends on what the blue dye is. Like, how good is that going to be for the the yeah, water? That's once be a problem. I'm thinking it was writ dye, like writ dye or something that you could. You know, they used to have some sort of blue dye you could put stuff in there. But I don't know. I don't know. It might might be illegal. There was uh, that blue Kool Aid powder when I was a kid. Oh, can you imagine your dog coming back wearing a coat of blue Kool-Aid sticky <laughs> stuff and jumping in your? <laughs> oh, yeah, especially especially when your dog starts out white. Ah, oh, man, no, this was this was refreshing to hear. Like you know, to kind of understand a little bit, you know, what these numbers mean. Pintails seem to be on the conservation concern for decades and decades now. And I now, based on what you said about how, you know, farming in the prairie pothole, riparian habitat kind of intermix, I, I really get it now. I've never really understood why why they were the one that's was was having the toughest the toughest time. So yeah. Well, yeah. And there's another feature in waterfowl ecology that determines mallards are prolific breeders. They've had examples of hens having their nest destroyed, re-nesting, having that destroyed, re-nesting four times in the southern part of their range. And now the clutches get smaller each time, but they really are insistent on that. There's another little interesting twist I wanted to mention. This is the, the X-rated part of this the about duck sex that... Um, it's possible to have too many males, too many drakes. In if you are over a wetland in the spring, you'll see sometimes a hen flying by with four or five drakes pursuing her. She's in the lead, and they're all doing aerobatics, trying to be her mate. And they will actually drive her to the ground and sequentially copulate with her. Uh, and it, they used to call them rape chases, which is socially and and politically correctness just wrong. It's also biologically wrong. It is called now called forced copulation uh, flights, and it's a way that we that we can actually survey uh, birds in the spring. You can sit in the blind and do counts of how many of these. They call them three bird chases. Sometimes it's two, sometimes it's eight, but it's hard on the females. Sometimes they'll drive her to the ground, pull the, the feathers out of the back of her neck. They drown them occasionally by holding her if she lands in the water. So it's a stressful thing, and so you have to ask what what's in it for the female. 
Well, it turns out some of these females are not just victims. They actually get up off their nest, go quacking over other males' territories, eliciting these chases. And there's some thought that this is uh, there's an evolutionary reason for this. If it turns out she has two years to breed and her mate that she's breeding with is shooting blanks, she's going to sit there and do the most risky thing a duck can do, sit in 28 days in a short stubble with hawks and owls and stuff around you know, flightless still day and night, all for naught. If he's, if he's infertile, she's, she's really taking a big risk with no payoff. So the evolutionary thought was she would go out there and elicit uh, extra pair copulations. So as an insurance policy, some of those boys are not going to be infertile. She didn't want to put all her eggs in one basket, so to speak. So the test for this came about and they said, well, that's great evolutionary theory. How would you test it? Well, we're going to go out, we're going to kill the hen and we're going to sample the DNA of all of her eggs and see if they all come from one male. And so when they tested this, it was quite interesting. About 20% of some nests were extra pair copulations. There was the male that bred them was not the male that they shot with the hen. Test everybody's DNA, do a little baby version of 23andMe. And clearly she had genetics from other, other males. Her eggs did. So it sort of saw, sort of all fits together, and then it raised some questions. People instantly do the wrong thing and jump to, well, does it apply to humans? Well, there's a, a fair bit of extra pair copulation that goes on in human couplings as well. In some societies, it's 15 to 20 percent of parents that, that you wouldn't have guessed from looking at the family structure. So it's there's there may be some other things that operate in us on this. We're, maybe we're not all strictly monogamous or strictly polygamous or something like that. There are other evolutionary drivers that may influence our decisions. I don't think you can jump from ducks to humans. There are too many sociological and, and psychological factors. But there might be some surprising reasons that that uh, mixed parentage occurs. So it was a really cool piece of research. That reminds me of a podcast we did with um, a white-tailed deer biologist from Michigan, um, Chad Stewart a few years ago, and he was talking about that. I'm just vaguely trying to remember, but it seemed to me that the number was around 10 to 15% somewhere of white-tailed twins or separate fathers. Yeah. So, so yeah, no, that that's kind of interesting. Uh, so maybe ducks and deer are more closely related than than humans in that respect but maybe maybe not maybe there's a, a lot we don't know what's going on but that's yeah so so when you said there can be in mallards there can be too many males so this is happening um there could be an evolutionary benefit like you explained of making sure that the time she invests on the nest they are all fertile eggs probably some stuff to do with genetic diversity and nature likes mixing things up for the you know survival of the fittest sort of thing but with the downside when you said too many males could that reach a situation where they're actually hurting the population because of this mass chasing of the females thing like are they harming too many are they um killing too many like or just they're so chaotic like nobody's getting any fertile eggs out of the whole deal like well, that's interesting. I can see your, the, the wheels spinning in your head. Say, we know how to fix this problem. And it is quite interesting. 
those people listening to this that remember the point system would remember a hen mallard at one point was 100 points. You shoot a hen, you're or 90 points. You're basically finished shooting for the day. Yet a drake mallard would only cost you 25 points out of your 100-point total. And the reason for that was because you could kill a lot of drakes and all the hens are going to get bred, even if they have to share a couple of drakes. You know, a drake mallard will screw a fence post if it can balance on top of it. That's why almost all the hybrid ducks we see or drake male and and uh, some other bird, you know, pintails, gadwalls, you know, widgeon. You'll see these weird hybrids, and it's because male mallards are just horny bastards. What can you say? You know, they're they're getting with it. So there is a situation where you could kill maybe 25-30% more. I'm making numbers up, but some proportion more drakes and have zero influence on the reproductive success the following fall. I'm mean, following spring. Uh, in fact, it may, might, might make life a little easier. All this, this relates to duck calling too. You know, when you, when we get these early season mallards barely colored up and we're quacking away at them, we think it was, they not, they're not paying attention. They're barely quacking, you know, but you get into the pre-breeding season, the, the pairing season in December in flooded woods of Mississippi and a good caller makes all the difference. I mean, they're, they're coming in, they hear a, a hen cackling down there and they're going to come through the timber and try to find you. And so it, um, we call cause it's fun. We like to make some noise and it doesn't do a heck of a lot. It works on geese, works on, especially works on specs, but it, I'm not sure it does a heck of a lot on, on mallards. You know, if they can see your face, they know you're there. Now the, the wing bee, you mentioned that, uh, at the, at the start of the show. So that, is an event that happens every year in Canada where scientists get together to look at the wing, uh, or in the case of a goose, the tip of the three long, longest primaries and and all of the tail, the tail feathers, and they get a, a bunch of information off of those on sex, age, some health conditions, so on and so on. Now, is that something they're watching for? In that is like our say with mallards, how many um, drakes are they taking versus Ruger's? Ruger's here's us talking about ducks. He, he, uh, he drakes. He he <laughs> um, take them. So are they? Are they? Um, are they looking at that composition and and saying it's okay or like whoa? It's like there's a couple of bad years where there are lots of hens. Cause I haven't seen the regulations change on that at all for like years. I'm not exactly sure. how. <laughs> I'm not sure exactly how they use that. I think it's probably more of a, of a secondary check on some of the other forecast data. It's one more piece of the pie. Um, it's also pretty, it's a, they know that there are huge biases in there because young birds are a lot easier to decoy and kill than old birds, especially birds that have been up and down the flyway twice, three times. They know what a, a bad spread looks like. Um, sick birds, injured birds, hungry birds, lonely birds, tired birds that are coming off, strangers to the area that are migrating through. Those are all the easiest birds to kill. Probably the hardest duck I've ever tried to kill was a, a model duck that lived and bred and raised all in the same one square mile, basically, of, their, their, of the coastal marsh of Louisiana. Local bird, wood ducks can be kind of hard too sometimes. Uh, they're, they're more local. They, they know their area well. So, yeah, but there, there is a situation where killing more mallards could possibly, in theory anyway, 
increase your reproductive success and overall hen health. And that was, I think, the reason behind some of the, the early liberalization of drakes and, and conservatism on hen harvests. And it's so nice with mallards because they are sexually dimorphic. You can tell in flight in a spread, the, the birds come in, your eye naturally gravitates towards that big green head and orange feet, and you try to shoot for drakes. You should anyway. Well, that's, yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> Ruger's, Ruger's going nuts over there. Um, Put him on. Come here, Ruger. You've probably got some something to say here. Here, we're talking about ducks, Ruger. <laughs> One more SOB. The only so, legitimate. He was like all tired this morning. Now he's all fired up. So uh, I think somebody drove in. That's what's going on. Cool. Well, I think it's one of the things that I'm definitely getting better at as a hunter is picking out my duck species and, you know, knowing like mallard drake, no pintail, juvenile pintail, like, you know, versus, you know, a gadwall and stuff. And I really felt like I was kind of coming into my own last year. So, you know, it's sort of like hunted sage grouse, they, they flush, your eye naturally goes to the great biggest boomer, this big helicopter thing, and you dump him, and it's tough to eat, and they're, you know, they, they taste like sage and stuff. You really should be shoot, shooting the juveniles for conservation reasons and for eating reasons. Um, the, the same is true for me in, in mallards. I, I'm shooting at the biggest, fluffiest, closest one, unless I really think about it. Take the back birds first and then work your way forward. You know, you got more time on those close ducks. But when their feet are almost touching your decoys and they're right there, it's just really, really hard not to just woof them, you know. But the really shooters that go for multiples, they shoot the, the back birds first and work work the, the way forward through the drakes. Oh you know? man, that's that's way that's way beyond me. <laughs> um so let's let's close off here with a with a news story that just uh, came out. Uh, it was a summary of a study that was recently um, produced uh, in Live Science. I don't know if that's just like I don't think that's the journal. I think that's just the thing that summarizes um, journal papers. So this one is called the Upcoming Solar Maximum could scramble migrating birds internal compass new study shows i'll just quickly kind of dive into what this is analyzing how birds migrated across the u.s over 23 years researchers have shown that solar weather events can seriously disrupt the navigation um, of birds so we're talking waterfowl here disrupts their ability. So space weather events, which I think they're the solar maximum is when um, the sun spits out some high energy particles and radiation disrupts the bird's ability to sense the earth's magnetic field. You've obviously heard about this before. What are your, what are your thoughts? When is this supposed to happen or did it already happen? It happens periodically, you know, you can tell by, by your, your CB radios used to crackle like crazy when you had the troposphere was disturbed by solar flares. Um, you know, I think this, this magnetic thing was first tested in racing pigeons because certain pigeons would get home and then yet uh, they have this, this magnetite material in their, in their inner ear and it helps orient. It's like the needle on a compass. 
I used to have racing pigeons when I was a kid and I'm going to have them again when I'm an old codger and can't get around. Um, cause I just like pigeons. They're cool. And so it's an orienting, faint orienting thing that they're sensitive to. Birds are sensitive to light wavelengths, magnet, uh, field, magnetic fields, orientation, colors to a degree that we can only begin to imagine. It's like you trying to imagine what your dog is getting when his nose is in, the, in a garden bed and he's just tail is going. It's just so fascinating. It's just a little wet spot on the ground. Well, he's he's probably reading the health status, what the previous dog had for dinner, you know, whether it's male or female, whether they're sick. But birds are tuned into their environment in ways that we just can barely fathom. So if something skews that magnetic field that they're seeing or feeling or sensing, they might not orient nearly as well. I would go a step further and say this has been happening for time immemorial. We don't regulate the sun and it, birds haven't gone extinct. It might increase the mortality. But, you know, in an interesting twist, I'll go way out on a limb here and make a wild ass hypothesis. It may also put birds in places that they ordinarily wouldn't have been that happen to be very good for them as a result of changes and such. Of the 99% that die, that 1%, those flocks that discover new places, maybe this shuffles the deck a little bit and gets them out in new places and they get to pioneer some new habitats. Just a theory, but um, possibly. This may, in the long-term scheme of evolution, it would weigh on how much importance one a bird puts on that magnetic orientation and not just the visual, the landmarks, the sun orientation, the moon, the stars, um, the, the, the what the other birds around them are saying. They use this constellation of influences to, to migrate, to orient. And they sometimes the winds will, be, will drift them way off course. Some years we have a lot more snow geese than others in Alberta. Some years the, the specks are further east and the people in, in Saskatchewan, Manitoba have a bang up year. And they orient as they go down the, the Mississippi flyway and they get tighter and tighter and they make corrections. So, but yeah, this could, this could throw a bunch of birds off for a little while. It's kind of a fascinating story. And the fact that they're asking the question in advance means they could develop some hypotheses and test this. How would you, can you make up a, a, an experimental test for this real quickly, just on the fly? I've got one or two myself. Oh, really? Okay. Um, How would you tell, tell whether this is something different this year with the solar flares? So what, what I would do is I would look at um, past solar flares and basically as many as I could and, and say, what have they done to the magnetic field? Like have they, let's just say, on average, each solar um, like flare off occurrence kind of like changes it like three to five percent or something like that, right? So now I'm like, okay, what what is the expect? What is NASA expecting it to do this time? Yada yada yada, and then kind of use that to sort of go, okay, I'm guessing or hypothesizing that if this one is on average or slightly bigger, it's going to set the geese off by like 3%, which means that over the distance of the continent, they're going to end up like a hundred kilometers off of where they thought they were going or so, you know, something like that. Perfect. That's great. Do you want your PhD in waterfowl ecology or aerospace engineering? Cause you um, want it, man. I think in, um, in aerospace ecology, <laughs> yeah. Aeros yeah. aerospace duckology. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I'll award it. You know, that's a, that's a great and a workable hypothesis if they are moved consistently, if it's not a chaos effect. that they. That's I was the only thing I was wondering. A slightly different indicator. 
if you know the Christmas bird counts and the and this bird Birds America and stuff, they have a very tight record keeping thing of late about accidental birds, rarities, strange birds, birds burnt, blown off course. And if you see an uptick of 25% more uh, Eurasian widgeon or, or some ruffs and reeves showing up here, oddball things that just, it, if there's a big uptick during this solar flare year, I would suggest that that's uh, supporting evidence that this is having an orientation effect. But I would look at, at a broad spectrum. We went for a tight mechanistic testable hypothesis but I would go for a scattergun approach and look for other things, but either look, one might win. The anomalies. No, that's uh that, that is definitely a good one. I know here on the West side of the Rocky mountains, occasionally some sandhill cranes get like when the far North end up on the wrong side, most of them are going down the Alberta side and we're like, what the hell is that thing standing out in the field? Right. God, what is that thing? Uh, you know, what else? Um, so there's a few snow geese kicking around in our Valley right now. I think they've got off course. Uh, that's, that's pretty, pretty strange. And I hear the odd thing of, a uh, snowy owls in weird. Yeah. Places. Snowy owls, they're, they're common. I've, I've, there was a snowy owl in Northern Louisiana one year. They just, they are really vagrant. If you get a big year of lemmings and the snowy owl populations will quintuple and these young birds, they don't know what's going on. They, they blow all over the map. They go everywhere mortality. That's more of a lemming driven thing. I heard uh, snow geese going over me uh, last night here on Vancouver Island. I thought those must be Wrangell or, or Yukon Cusquim Delta birds that are just going down the coast of California. That's all I can figure. Um, yeah, it was kind of a situation. No, that's, that's awesome. Um, yeah, I just, I literally just saw that story yesterday and, and I thought that'll be a fun one to talk to Lee about. So. Lee, appreciate you coming on the Around Canada podcast and um, touch, touching on these topics in the middle of waterfowl season in Canada. So really appreciate your insight. I love it. You enjoy it. And I hope you hope you get on those gadwalls. Kill all the gadwalls you can and leave me the mallards, okay? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll work on that for sure. You'll have to come here and uh, hunt the late season mallards. And I would love to. Thanks, buddy. All right, everybody, you're up to date on what's going on around Canada, and we will see you in the next episode.